The Guardian. Hello, I'm Madeline Bunting and welcome to the Focus podcast. In this week's show, we head to New York, where the UN has been hosting its first summit since setting the Millennium Development Goals 10 years ago. Around the world, hundreds of millions of people have been lifted from extreme poverty. That is all for the good. Yet we must also face the fact that progress towards other goals that were set has not come nearly fast enough. We will insist on more responsibility from ourselves and from others. We insist on mutual accountability. We need to be big-hearted, but also hard-headed in our approach to development. We'll be looking at where improvements need to be made and asking whether having separate goals is the best way to push global development forward. The Millennium Development Goals, or MDGs as those in the industry call them, are a blueprint agreed by all 189 members of the UN. They were set up with the aim to meet the needs of the world's poorest by 2015. And the UN summit was a chance to address whether they're working. The Guardian's Sarah Bosley was in New York. I am standing in the main lobby of the United Nations building in New York. The global leaders move in and out of this building where they discuss their pledges in back rooms away from the spotlight and deliver set-piece speeches in the main chamber aimed at their audiences back home. But there are hundreds of other linked events taking place all over New York often in sumptuous hotels where UN agencies and NGOs and philanthropists rub shoulders with billionaire businessmen. I went to a brunch at the Waldorf Astoria on maternal health, followed by lunch at the Harvard Club on extending broadband access across the developing world. Sarah and Gordon Brown are both in town, so is Cherie Blair, Bill and Melinda Gates, and Hillary Clinton. New York is awash with power and glamour, and the streets around the UN and top hotels are cordoned off by police, causing gridlock. They have three days to think of new ways to save the world, but it's a tough ask when even the wealthiest countries are feeling the cold wind of economic recession. We should probably just outline what the goals are and how we think they're doing. Here's our Guardian report. Making progress so far. MDG 1, to eradicate poverty and hunger. And... MDG2, Achieve Universal Primary School Education. And it's China that has done particularly well with hunger and poverty, and Africa on education. Next, those where achievements have been disappointing. MDG4, Improve Child Mortality. MDG6, Combat HIV and AIDS. And... MDG5, Reduce Maternal Mortality. This is where efforts have been concentrated at the summit in New York. Finally, we've real concerns about... MDG 3, that's gender equality. MDG 7, environmental sustainability. And... MDG 8, global partnership. Perhaps these were always very ambitious. With me here in London to discuss the big questions raised at the summit are Dr Gobind Nankani, an economist and advisor to the Ghanaian government... Andy Sumner from the Institute for Development Studies, and Juanita During from WaterAid in Nigeria. Let's first talk about how successful we've been in reaching the goals. Gobin, Ghana has been a great success story. How has it managed to do it? Well, I think Ghana's had uh, a good success in terms of at least uh, three of the various uh, MDGs. First of all, I think the progress on poverty reduction has been remarkable. You had in 1990 a level of poverty 
over 50%, and it's now below 25%. That's been very much a function of impressive growth in this period. And uh, it is also true that poverty had fallen quite, you know, I mean, sorry, poverty had risen during the 80s to a very high level. So in some sense, we were coming down from a very high level. But the growth record has been good, and that has made a big difference. On primary enrollment, there's been a big effort by the Ghana government, and I think we are very close to 100% primary enrollment ratio. And have the MDGs, having, you know, the MDGs around, has that been part of what why Ghana has made such an effort, for example, on education, as you're saying? Yeah, I think there's absolutely no doubt that having a rallying cry around global goals like the MDGs has influenced our thinking. I think policymakers, ministers always refer to these programs as a way of uh, identifying targets. That's a very positive and inspiring story. Juanita, in Nigeria, which is just over the border from Ghana, it's a very, very different story. Well, I think um, there needs to be a bit of context because just thinking about the sheer numbers, um, you know, the scale in Nigeria, we're talking about a country of about at least 140 million people. And so Ghana is really just a tiny percentage of that in terms of numbers. Um, so it, it's important to get that context right when we're comparing in terms of achievement. And I don't think it would be completely correct to say that Nigeria has not made progress at all. You know, there has been some progress. So first of all, we think about the numbers. And then the second thing we think about, Nigeria, as far as really the MDGs are concerned, it's only been since 1999 that there has been a, dem a democratic gov government in place. In the years before then, before 1999, it's been military dictatorship. And so there, have, there has been that challenge. We all know the challenge of military dictatorship. And so that's what it's been. But there has, there has been progress on, on a number of targets like education. Um, and primary enrollment has really gone up. In terms of enrollment numbers has been good. Retention, not so good. But then, of course, I mean, there's no denying the fact that mater maternal mortality, um, child mortality has been really a problem. Uh, Andy, what is, what is your verdict on, on Nigeria? Because hunger is, is something that Nigeria has not managed to significantly reduce. Is that right? Um, yes, as far as I, I, I know some of the specifics about Nigeria. What I'm struck by, and it's just occurred to me, is it's quite easy to find uh, examples of countries who have done really well. Ghana is a very good example of that, I think. But what I'm struck by is, of course, Ghana is a low-income country where resources are a huge constraint, and Nigeria is actually richer than India in terms of per capita income. Nigeria is about $1,200 per person. Uh, and I'm just really struck by uh, what's, uh, what's doable at certain levels of income if the governance works and if there's, there's functioning democracy and, and what happens in other countries. And presumably the role of civil society is crucial. Absolutely. I mean, Nigeria has, has you know, made a big, big jump into getting democracy into place. Yes. There's a lot, lot more that can happen in terms of embedding and, and, and enriching that civil society, which Absolutely. can put pressure on the government yeah. to make significant improvements. H how confident do you feel that yeah. that is really beginning now to happen? Yeah, it's beginning to happen. We're beginning to see, you know, the first flutters, if you like, of it. But there's a lot that still needs to be done because at the end of the day, the local people have got to have a voice. And I'm very passionate about the voice of the people. 
you know, um, it was very interesting to hear your correspondent from New York talking about, you know, the glamorous venues and the water of Astoria. And I remember making that very clear in my speech, you know, to the um, Deputy Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, reminding us that at the centre of all of this, the power lunches, the fancy venues, the world leaders hobnobbing, the voice of the poor has got to be heard at some point in this conversation because really the Millennium Development Goals is about transforming the lives of billions of people living in some of the poorest parts of the world. According to Amnesty International, somewhere in the world a woman dies giving birth every 90 seconds. In India, the government uses cash incentives to encourage women to give birth in health centres, but women are still dying in alarming numbers. Kiran Yadav sadly passed away while giving birth to her son last year. Her sister-in-law, Bidyawati, tells us about Kiran's last moments. A beautiful baby was born. My sister-in-law kissed him and hugged him. Everything seemed good. After that, it just went wrong. I was the birth attendant. Kieran would definitely have survived if we had facilities for blood transfusions. We were helpless. She was in full dilation. Had she come earlier, we would have referred her right away. We are very short of doctors. So most of us have to work as maternity doctors. Whether we have that degree or not. We have to make sure that we have enough medicines enough fluids, oxygen, electricity. Electricity is a big problem. When we got to the hospital, the gate was closed. The men in our family told the guards to open it. Then when we were allowed inside, the doctor came and examined her. He told us that she was no more. The story of Kiran Bidyawati. And for more on these tragic stories, there's a video on the Human Rights Watch website hrw.org. In the discussions in New York around the MDGs, everyone agreed that the key to further progress is the role of women. Juanita, why is this? It's not rocket science, really. I'm, I'm amazed that the case needs to be made, actually, that women have to be at the heart, at the centre of the human development agenda. It's just exactly the right direction to go. I mean, there's an African proverb I've often quoted that if you educate a woman, you educate a nation. If you empower a woman, you empower a nation. Because in many communities around the world, um, developing world, even beyond Africa, the woman is the primary caregiver. She's the one who not only bears the child, but trains the child. And so that a woman is empowered, a woman is educated, a woman feels she has the right to take decisions that affect her life and her destiny means that there's a healthier child, there's a child more likely to be educated, there's a daughter more likely to be educated rather than giving away in marriage. Um, a healthier woman can also, you know, have economic activities and so empower herself, enrich the family. There's no, there's no downside to putting women at the centre of development. So why is it so hard to do it? Well, I think... In fact, if you look at the progress on the MDGs, uh, on primary education particularly, you find that the gender parity goal is, is being met. I think the push in, f in favor of primary enrollment has sort of had all, all boats rise, if you like. Um, but I, I just want to say 
there's a lot of progress on the gender front in, in development. I mean, what Juanita was saying, you look everywhere and you find development projects and development programs taking advantage of this stronger orientation to the human development agenda that w- that women bring. You look at the lending, for example, that takes place in microfinance in Bangladesh, and it's all to women, groups of women. You look at uh, repayment on loans on microfinance. The women's repayment ratios are in the 90s, and the men are not paying that much. So I think it's a tremendous advantage, and I think development programs are taking more and more advantage of of this dimension. Andy, do you, do you agree with that one, that, that you know that the fine rhetoric in New York and all the glamorous networking talking about the role of women, it does actually begin to sort of percolate all the way through to the grassroots? Does it sort of work? Can we have summits which shift these kinds of ingrained patterns of behaviour? Um, I think so, but these things take a long time. It's not something that can be done very quickly. Uh, when you, you're talking about structural inequalities... Um, and the position of women in various countries is, is related to a whole range of factors, economic in particular, but also sociocultural and reasons why women may or may not inherit assets or may have uh, <coughs> limited uh, control over the decisions in their lives that they might want to, might want to take. Uh, so I think it's possible, but you're talking about long-run change in societies. This kind of stuff can take 10 or 20 years. The MDGs, although they were conceived in 2000 are stretched over 1990 to 2015 and and Dr Gobin's quite right there is a, you know the the gender parity goal and the, and is one where i think uh, there's a, a pretty good chance that it, it would be met at a global and regional level in, in a lot of parts of the world uh, so that's certainly the, that's certainly the good news i noticed in that clip that we had that it was the men in the family that had to ask the hospital guards to open mm. the gate so Again and again, women in really critical situations have to depend on the intervention of men. I think it's hugely important for us to make the point that while we acknowledge that there is progress on that on, on MDG3, we're nowhere near where we need to be. We're still a long, 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 long way. I mean, where we're talking about women at community grassroots levels who have no control over their lives and their destiny, we're nowhere near there. Where women can't take decisions, where women are not part of even, you know, planning, where women are not consulted in design of, of basic facilities. Have you seen like a latrines? change in your, over your life, Juanita? I mean, when you grew up as a girl, what about your mother's life? Have you seen change? Do you see the pace of change? I've seen the pace of change, but I think it's still slow. And why I'm saying this is that, like um, Andy was saying, it's about social transformation. It's about shift, you know, mind shifts, changing culture, changing behavior, changing perceptions over time. And so that's really a long time. Infrastructure, they can, they, they can be put in place. Tokenism can happen. You can increase the number of, of women in, 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 um, in parliament or, or in government positions, but whether you've really changed the perception of a woman as equal to a man, then that's an that's a entirely different sphere. You know, and I know that we have to take it in small, small bites, but we need to keep it in our minds. Let me give you a classic case of Nigeria where a woman cannot travel, a woman cannot get an, inter, um, an international pas- passport from immigration a married woman, until she brings a letter of consent from her husband in 2010. And I'm talking about any woman. If I, Juanita, were married and I needed to come to London and I had to get a new passport, my husband would have to give me a letter of consent. I think it's a scandal. We're nowhere near there, and we must not forget that. 
it raises the issue of perhaps whether we, we haven't focused on inequality enough in the MDGs. We've, we've thought about primary education, gender equality is very important. I mean, there's a fantastic report that Nyla Kabir has just put out on, on sort of the MDGs and gender inequality. But I think there's wider issues about have we really helped and reached the poorest or have we just helped those who are kind of the near poor or not so poor, but the rather deep-rooted poverty where the MDGs have achieved that? I think we really should make the point that if you were starting from scratch, you would want to have, at a national level, the kinds of MDG goals calibrated to set targets that are stretch targets but achievable at the national level. There was a big choice and a big debate. Should you have global goals, which would be a rallying point for everybody, or should you have country-specific goals? I think some of the comparisons between Ghana and Nigeria are a little bit unfair. I think it's the like, challenge is great in Nigeria. If Nigeria was setting itself goals, it wouldn't set the same goals it's as It's like Ghana. comparing apples and pears, exactly. isn't it? It's not the same. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. Right. Back to Sarah at the summit now. While there's been a real focus on certain goals, such as eradicating poverty and education for all, there's a danger that goals such as combating HIV AIDS have been overlooked. This is Michelle Sidibe, who's Executive Director of UNAIDS. So if this, this summit actually moves things on by directing resources and efforts through maternal and child health, doesn't that leave HIV-AIDS on the sidelines? No, I don't think so, because what is very important for us is to make sure that this summit brings uh, at the core of the debate the integration. We cannot uh, deal with uh, maternal health uh, and uh, child health in isolation. We have uh, 400,000 babies born every year with HIV. We have 75% uh, of uh, maternal death in Swaziland due to HIV. So it will be a, a big mistake to just uh, try to create a new vertical approach which will not uh, leverage the resources which are made available to produce broader health and development outcome. And I hope that will be uh, at the centre of the discussion. And do you think there will be enough money to go around to cover all of this? I, I don't think so, and that's why I think uh, uh, the financial crisis, uh, uh, with the whole risk uh, uh, to pressurize uh, all our models uh, to make uh, a shift, uh, is uh, something which will oblige us also uh, to look at uh, how to be cost effective, bringing value for money, but making sure that we reduce duplication and uh, also uh, doing things differently. Innovation could be a way to reduce also cost of uh, uh, doing a business and uh, tapping on non-conventional uh, capacities by using uh, uh, alternative service delivery system. All of that will be important. Linking AIDS to maternal health, reproductive health, child health is the way to go. In that contribution there, there seems to be a, a kind of question about whether having individual goals is the right way forward. Have the MDGs sort of set up a kind of competition, a sort of auction in New York, if you like, where everybody is kind of arguing that their goal is the most important? I, I wonder, Dandy, what, what do you think about that? Um, well, I think it's certainly true that different... Uh, big names and celebrities have been picking off certain MDGs to associate themselves with, uh, uh, and we could sort of see that quite clearly. Um, and that's useful because each particular goal, I think, needs a sort of champion or an, an advocate to push it forward. The thing is about the MDGs is you need to make progress on all of them. It's no use putting kids through school if they're malnourished or if there's no proper sanitation or if you don't start sort of uh, uh, dealing with the gender, gender equality type issues. Well, Anita, do, do you have a goal that, that you feel is more important than all the others, that's a sort of key to all the others? 
I think that the, the I word, which is integration, really, if the strongest message that can come out of this summit is how integrated and interconnected the MDGs are, and that it's only through an integrated approach that they will be met. I mean, if that's the song, the mantra, really, that we can chant from now to 2015, then I think we will be, you know, will we really be getting there? Because as I said at the, at the, at the Bond event, if you're, you know, the, the, the hunger goal requires progress on, on education, on nutrition. The health target requires progress on sanitation, on, on nutrition. So it's, it's impossible, in my opinion, to think about achieving the MDGs in any way without thinking about how interconnected they are. And as I said as well, you know, about champions and celebrities and who's really, ba you know, barking which, which horse and all of that. Until we are thinking about an integrated aid system, an integrated development approach that looks at where the need is greatest, not who can shout the loudest. And the need as dictated, as told by the poor and marginalized for whom the MDGs is literally a matter of life and death. So where people want to talk about, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the glamorous courses and all the celebration around setting MDGs or targets, we must be thinking about what are the people at the local community levels, what are the things killing our children. In Africa, for example, diarrhea is the biggest killer of children under five. Diarrhea is killing more children under the age of five than anything else put together. And so you think about a thing like that and you think about what is so critical to that, to cholera, water, sanitation, is so basic. But, you know, I, we won't come and sing that song in itself because if these children are healthy, they also need to be educated. You know, the girls need to feel empowered and, and complete and equal. So anywhere you look, anywhere you come from, integration, an integrated aid approach is the way to go. Gobind, are there really important issues that are not covered by the MDGs? Is there a danger that by focusing so much on the MDGs, we're missing something that's really important? Yeah. Well, first, let me just underline the point about integration. I think that's a fundamental point. And I think there is a recognition that all of these goals are really interconnected and need to be looked at in that perspective. Having said that, it is also true that at the end of the day, when you actually have to implement things, you've got to break them down into programs and projects. So you actually need both sides of it. Now, on your other question, the one or two things that are really missing here is we all know that for countries to make progress on these goals, they've got to have sustainable and shared growth underlying it. You know, otherwise, otherwise this is all going to be aid financed and it's not sustainable. Um, I think it's implicit, but beyond 2015, I think we really need to bring much more of a focus on growth and not growth in quantitative terms, quality of growth as well. Which means, what would you mean by quality of growth? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of social indicators that accompany growth, the kind of inequality issues that accompany growth, the kind of environmental sustainability questions that accompany growth. The other thing which runs right through all of these MDGs and is not mentioned once is, of course, infrastructure. For, for getting kids to school, for getting infants. You mean things like roads, roads bridges? Roads and bridges, yeah. powers, electricity supply. I mean, we heard Juanita say earlier on, one of the big challenges really is that in most African countries, you don't have a supply of electricity that will make possible 
use even of equipment that you have. And and that's a big missing that's a big missing. I think it's a bit of a reflection of the thinking on development during the nineties, when when it was generally felt that the private sector would take care of infrastructure investment. Well it didn't happen. And now there's a huge infrastructure deficit everywhere. Well, let's get back to Sarah in New York as she draws some conclusions from the summit. I'm here with Meredith Alexander, Head of Policy at ActionAid. The summit has come to an end. We've had the big outcome document that uh, uh, Ban Ki-moon hopes will deliver maternal and child health. Um, I'm going to ask Meredith what she thinks the summit's achieved. Well, the challenges facing us today are staggering. We're looking at 3.5 million children who are going to die as a result of hunger this year. We're looking at a cost of $450 billion to the world's economy every year that we fail to meet our hunger promise. And what ActionAid was really hoping to see was a step change in how we're responding to these issues. We were looking for political leadership. We were looking for willpower. We were looking for some more resources, to be honest with you. And unfortunately, this summit to me, it felt like business as usual. We have five years to achieve these goals, only five years. The urgency just hasn't been there. The, the drive to make these things a reality, it seems to be missing. We know that something like $40 billion has been committed over the next five years to achieving the, uh, the, the goal of MDG5 and, and the rest of them, one hopes, through that. Uh, is that not sufficient money? It's fantastic that so much support is being given to child mortality. The MDG5 is definitely a really important one, and maternal mortality is also extremely important. The money that's been pledged is going to go a long way towards those specific issues, but there are eight goals that we're here to discuss, and unfortunately, what we really needed was a rescue package that looked at timetables for delivery, both in terms of resources and in terms of change on the ground. And that kind of costed plan just hasn't materialized. The outcome document is a lot of warm words, but we all know that warm words are not going to fill empty bellies. In the past, we have seen that when the spotlight are switched off, world attention quickly moves on to other issues. With only five years left, we cannot let that happen. We must make sure that promises made become promises kept. The consequences of doing otherwise are profound death, illness, and despair. We must hold each other accountable. The global leaders all say they are pleased with what has been achieved here in New York over the last few days. And it may well be thought that raising $40 billion and getting so many countries, rich and poor, to commit to a unified strategy is impressive in these difficult financial times. But ActionAid is not the only NGO worrying that it won't be enough. Time will tell. Five years' time, in fact. Well, that was Sarah in New York. The problem here is that even if the world did manage to meet the MDGs, there would still be a billion people living in poverty. So what happens after 2015? Where next for global development? Andy, you've been giving this a bit of thought. Um, yeah, we, we've sort of uh, been, been pondering this. It's a debate that a lot of people are having quietly uh, in different agencies behind doors, but people have sort of been very cautious about talking about it in public because there's some sensitivity. Uh, it might detract from the MDGs. But anything, whatever comes after 2015, will somehow have to build on, on where we are. 
Uh, and we, we sort of put forward uh, three ideas to trigger debate, not to suggest any of them are necessarily better than the others. The first one is, is a kind of more of the same business as usual, uh, as your correspondent called it, which is basically just extend the deadline to 2020 or 2025, same goals. I think that's what Jeffrey Sachs is still advocating. Uh, a second option would be MDG Plus. This would kind of take a core set of global goals and then allow countries to localise them, much as Gobbin suggested, so that you had countries that were appropriate, uh, you had goals that were appropriate for countries. Uh, 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 resources and, and those kind of issues. And then finally, there's a sort of global solidarity type agreement that might be more about linking poverty reduction to a changing climate and a more hostile climate. A kind of one world type agreement is, is, was one of the ideas we, we suggested. Gobind, you, you talked a little bit about infrastructure and the focus on economic growth. Um, in your sort of post-2015 uh, proposals, you know, would you recast this kind of, you know, the MDGs a bit to include these issues? I take a two-track approach. I think, as I said earlier, the rallying point advantage of the MDGs is not to be dismissed lightly. So some idea of extending the, the time period to reach these global goals is attractive. There is momentum. Let's not lose that. But at the same time, I would say countries should develop their own MDG plans, which would be more refined, more realistic, and would include other important uh, complementary goals as they felt were necessary, such as growth and infrastructure. Uh, Take a two-track approach that way. Juanita, one of the problems is that if, when it comes to 2015, everyone decides that the world failed, it didn't meet the MDGs, that whole kind of momentum that they've been able to to generate across the world in terms of global solidarity, how do you manage to reignite that? You know, how how do you get the world to commit to a new set of ambitions if they didn't do great on the last lot? Mm. Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's why it would probably be a mistake to assume that um, it's complete failure by 2015, because many times when we ask the question what comes after 2015, there's the implied um, assumption that um, 2015 we would have failed, you know. But I think that it's just that we would not have met the targets, but we would have achieved something. And so maintaining that sort of momentum and getting the world to rally would be to look at what has been achieved. Because very often, it can, you know, we, we get um, bogged down by what hasn't happened. But if we start to look at what, what has happened, where it has happened, and that's why this next five years will be very critical in terms of really focusing on what, we, what can be achieved. And so that by 2015, there's a sense of, okay, We've been able to do this. Now let's just sort of a a final heave, if you like, to see where next we can go. Andy, Mm. what we heard from ActionAid is is a quite familiar sort of NGO campaigning line, which is it's all terrible and we've got to kind of hurry everybody into achieving the MDGs. That sense of sort of urgency and we wanted more and we're going to fail. You can see why the NGOs campaign like that. But Juanita raises a really important point, which is that if the NGOs say that for the next five years, they're going to actually be sort of cutting off their own nose, really, to spite their face. Isn't, Isn't that a bit of the dilemma? Yes, I mean, it depends how you view the MDGs. And I think Gobin made a kind of point where I think is, was quite crucial, and we kind of alluded to it. That these, these were always a political compromise about some kind... They're about the politics that we care about poverty and the world is prepared to do something. You can find all sorts of problems with the indicators and the, no one expected them to be quite so distorting. I think in the way they... You know, for example, loads of kids in school, but the number of teachers hasn't 
kept pace you've got sort of higher larger classes although more kids are in school there's going to be some weird kind of uh, distortions that weren't expected when we looked at the and did the number crunching we were trying to identify where do the poor live and how's that changed over the last 20 years what we found is in 1990 uh, 93% of the world's poor, by whatever measure you take, lived in low-income countries under $1,000 per person per year. And if you look at the picture now, you, you find about three-quarters of the world's poor, by whatever measure you take, live in middle-income countries. So Nigeria is officially a middle-income country. And that seems to me raises com- a lot of issues. It's no longer a case that poor people live in, most poor people live in poor countries. It's a more complex world. And this is about the, 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 the shift of, of a, a largest group of countries to middle-income status, while still having a lot of poor people living in their boundaries. That's a very interesting point that I'm sure we'll be taking up at some point in another Guardian Focus podcast. But that's it for this week. My thanks to Dr. Gobind Nankani, Andy Sumner and Juanita During. Remember to go to The Guardian's new global development site, which will be tracking progress on the Millennium Goals. I'm Madeline Bunting and the producer was Peter Sale. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.